my son can get a hold of my cellular device. And it just so happens that, um, that every once in a while, though maybe our kids think that we, we don't see what happens when they grab our cellular device, it just so happens that every once in a while, um, uh, we see precisely what happens when they grab our cellular device. And so I want to show you uh, some things that my son Dawson did uh, just a few days ago when he grabbed my cell phone. By the way, it's the same son that as we baptized the Nay family, some of you guys in the back heard him. My wife shared this with me. He said and yelled out, that's what I'm talking about as they're, ba- as they're, as they're being baptized. So, um, <laughs> so at some point, Dawson gets my phone in the last three days, and I'm, I, I pull up the pictures, and, uh, and he, t- he took some pictures. Uh, yes, he did. This was his first one. I don't, I would like to understand like what was going on as he was taking these, you know, like, like what his intention really was, but um, here's number two, uh, this one, you know, I don't know if this was intended for me specifically or if he was checking out his lip radius, you know, uh, they get better, look at number three, this one's uh, really solid, this is like, he has something about crossing his eyes, okay, like I, this is like the intense face, here's number four, um, that's kind of the kind of the inquisitive fish-like face, I guess that is. And then here's Everclassy number five. Check this out. I think you'll appreciate this. This is this is the constipated face. Um, I'm going to hold on to those because um, I, I may need them someday. You know what I'm saying? Couldn't you imagine me at his wedding, like pulling these out? So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and save those. So they're, they're all selfies and. Um, Listen, everything I'm about to say, don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hating on selfies, um, but I kind of am. Um, listen, every single day, the stats say in the age group between 18 and 24, though certainly, certainly uh, there are some exceptions to that on both sides, uh, one million selfies are taken. That's what stats say. Uh, today, listen to this, to date, 62 million selfies on Instagram have just the simple hashtag uh, selfie. Uh, it's become certainly a, a cultural phenomenon, uh, much more than what I remember, like using the, the Polaroid film, because I think the thought was, like, we're not going to waste a picture, you know, because we only have 24 on that old roll, you know what I'm talking about? We're not going to waste one on a potential mistake, you know, and so you were more strategic. Um, listen, I know there's plenty of selfies that are incredibly harmless, but at the same time, it, it seems like it does say a little bit about the culture that we live in, you know? Um, to say that we're to say that we're self-consumed um, seems like an understatement. Um, that more and more and more we're being taught, even with how we how we use pictures, that the best picture is if we capture ourselves. Um, listen, I, I was absolutely enamored with uh, the text that Jared shared last week with us uh, so wonderfully. And in fact, uh, verse thirteen uh, of chapter ten absolutely captured my heart, and, and I want to I actually begin there. Um, so here's what verse 13 says uh, from last week. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is, what's the word there? Faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Look at this. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Here's what I've come to believe more and more every day is that Jesus offers me a way out of myself. The escape that Christ provides is a way out of yourself. That somehow when he bids us to come, as Brandon just prayed, he bids us to come and die, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. And that death that we would die to ourselves and the person of Christ is the way out of the thing that we need out of, and that is us. And so tonight, I want to gather us around the concept that there's a whole bunch of people in this room, myself included, that have one singular hope, and that singular hope is that Christ has made a way of escape. And that escape isn't so that we can more properly indulge. That escape is so that we could find life outside of our flesh and fully in Him, okay? And so tonight we get to study what will become, for many of you, a proof text of a teaching that many of you have used the wrong verse to use as a proof text. Let me show you what I mean. Next slide. 
many of you have used this passage in Luke 16 as a way of talking about, you know, we shouldn't serve two different kinds of mentalities. And so you've used this passage. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, which we can certainly apply that to many certain uh, understandings. But look at the end of the verse. You cannot serve God and money. So the context of this verse in Luke 16, 13 is the love of God and the love of money. You can't serve two masters. Well, I feel like all of us have been searching for like the proof text that actually communicates very clearly that we're either serving God or we're serving something else. And tonight is our proof text as God provides a way out through Jesus. So open up your Bibles, my dear friends, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, again, appreciate so much uh, Jared's words last week and uh, continue to uh, just admire that brother in Christ and anxious uh, to leap off of verse 13 tonight as we begin here. God, please kill our flesh tonight. Amen. Uh, God, just please take us. Bid us to come and God, help us receive that you've called us to come and die. Here's what verse 14 says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I want to point out a couple things. Uh, I've said it before. Anytime you see the word therefore, it's significant because it's connecting what was a previous to now what, what is to come. So he makes this very powerful statement that Christ provides a way of escape from temptation. And then he says, therefore, and what are the middle words? This is beautiful. Look at this. My what? My beloved. Now, if you've been journeying with us, uh, it's a little bit confusing to think that maybe that, that the Corinthian church is Paul's beloved because he certainly seems to rail on them quite a bit, right? Uh, so it's like, man, you seem kind of angry at times. Like, I don't understand why you seem so frustrated. Do you really love the church in Corinth? And what I've learned more and more is that the brothers and sisters in Christ that love me the, love me the most are the ones that are most willing uh, to call me to task in truth and love. Have you guys found that to be true? Again, there's a whole other segment of people that enjoy just being bold and, and angry all the time. But there's a whole segment of people that the more they care about me, the more they're willing um, to challenge me and to say, brother, I, I can see this in your life. And I'm wondering if that's really you dying to yourself or if that's you indulging in yourself. So all of the hard teaching that Paul has provided in 1 Corinthians has been shaped around this concept that he cares for them. And so listen, when someone writes, when someone writes, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry, and it's fueled with love and care and passion, then we have to understand what his heart is. So let's define idolatry just for fun, okay? And in fact, to define it, let's use the Heidelberg Catechism. I know that's um, much of your daily reading. Um, here's what the Heidelberg uh, Catechism says. Idolatry is having or inventing, and I love the word there, inventing, something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. So idolatry is an issue of trust. Is God who he says that he is? Or are we inventing something to either take his place or we could say compete with him? Uh, that's why I, th I think and believe the most poignant question that we need to begin with tonight uh, is this one, next uh, slide. Do we trust in God or an idea? Uh, I think that some of you, when you started a relationship with the Lord, or for some of you, as you've uh, walked with the Lord now for a while, you've gotten confused about what it even is that you're doing. Uh, maybe it started out as a trust in the character and person and work of God, and now what's happened is you believe in a system in a religion that provides you relationships and structure in life. I'm asking you today, do you believe and submit to a God who sits on a throne, who's going to send his son to return and take the church home? Or today, do you believe in a concept, in an idea that may or may not be true? And I'm not talking about what you would communicate out of your mouth. I'm asking you what you believe. I'm asking myself. Because what I've learned is when you understand that God is God, that he sits on the throne, that he, he's won victory by conquering death, then all of a sudden my submission to him 
is not a submission to an idea, but it's a submission to a person. Are you guys with me? And when your submission is to a person, then all of a sudden, what competes with that person, by definition, pales in comparison. In other words, idolatry rises when you think that God is an idea. Because if he's he's just an idea, then why wouldn't you uh, try the the trust envelope? Uh, Why wouldn't you say, yeah, I don't don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe, Maybe it's my job that I really need to trust in. And maybe that can replace who God is. And certainly maybe uh, it's this relationship that uh, will provide for me what God can't. Uh, Do you today believe that he is a God? Or are you and have you signed up for some sort of idea? Well, that said, here's what verse 14 made very, very clear. Next slide. It says that we're to flee from idolatry. We've only seen this word one other time in 1 Corinthians. You guys remember the context? We were called to flee from what? Anyone remember? Sexual immorality. Okay. And when we taught that text in 1 Corinthians, I said that we're either fleeing or flirting. Now, I want to pose a situation which maybe is some of your experience. Did you have a high school relationship, potentially, where you were really, really interested in a significant other, started dating that significant other, but you found solace in flirting while you were dating? Uh, In other words, you were able to have like a kind of significant other while you didn't have to lose the relationship. You guys know what I'm saying? Um, There there was, I hate to admit, um, a girl that tried to wedge her way into Heidi's, uh, Heidi and I's very early relationship when I was 16. Uh, Her name was was Chloe Gable, okay? Uh, She was a, a freshman and uh, this was a, certainly a point of contention for Heidi and I. Uh, so I didn't share that I would be sharing this with, with her. So please uh, pray for me as I venture home tonight. But listen. Um, so listen, Heidi and I start dating. Listen, Heidi and I start dating. And then what happens is like, like Chloe is giving me attention. And, you know, she was younger. And, and, and you know, I was kind of the the big sport athlete in a very small school. And so I, it was just fueling my pride. And, and so though I, I certainly didn't desire uh, any facet of a relationship with Chloe because I had already told Heidi that I was going to marry her. I was in love with Heidi. I, I wanted to be with Heidi. Like for a minute there, it was intriguing that I could somehow have a relationship while simultaneously flirting. Uh, now let's leave high school and let's just, let's just come into today, okay? And I know some of you are in high school, so it relates. But, but do you have the same sort of thing happening for some of you? Like you're able to be married, right? But you're also able to flirt. So you're able to have the thing that you don't really want to lose because uh, losing it would mean too much pain. But you're able to kind of dabble. You're, you're able to flirt enough Uh, to toe the line enough that it fuels that piece of your insecurity. And so what the the Greek word fugo, flee, makes very, very clear is though you can exist wholeheartedly in this kind of mentality. No, I can have the thing that I don't want to lose while flirting with the thing that I know I really don't want. What scripture makes clear is no, fugo, flee, run from it. Because every single day that you're, that you're fueled by another flirtatious wink or comment or lure from the enemy, oh my goodness, the indulgence all of a sudden can be overwhelming. And so tonight, again, like as we begin to wrestle with what it means to run from idolatry with the perfect understanding that Christ is a way out of ourselves, I want you to understand that you can spend your, the rest of your life flirting with idolatry, or you can embrace what Christ allows. Run. Run. Leave. You have me. You need nothing else. So flee from idolatry, he says. Verse 15, I love this. It's kind of funny. He says, I speak as to sensible people. (laughs) Judge for yourselves what I say. (laughs) Do you guys understand, like, all the things he said to the church in Corinth? 
I don't believe he has like called them sensible yet. Are you guys with me? He, he's seemingly like joked about their maturity many, many times. Like you're still on milk, you're immature. But what has the church in Corinth boasted in? What are they boasted in? Come on, what? They're what? They're wisdom. You see what he does here? You've boasted about your wisdom in Corinth. All right, all right. So I'm going to go ahead and appeal to a sensible people then. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And because you're so sensible, then I bet if I make a very, very clear case, you're going to go ahead and understand then what fleeing from idolatry is. Make sense? Listen, you came here tonight, you're sitting in that chair, but I'm guaranteeing you, my friends, the beauty of verse 16 is absolutely insane. Look at this. To the sensible people, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, what does the scripture say, in the what? In the body of Christ. Let me read it again. Let the words sink in a little bit. This is beautiful language, okay? The cup of blessing that we bless, which in the Passover feast was the third cup, okay? And and over the third cup, there was a, a, a prayer of blessing said. Many believe, okay, that it was at the point of the third cup of blessing that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. There's certainly some varied opinion there, but it's at some point in all of this, okay, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a a participation in the body of Christ? What he does now is he makes two altars, two tables, two paths of life very, very, very clear. And the first is participation in, with Christ. Now, can I absolutely encourage you with something? Next slide. Look at this. The word participation. This is crazy. Crazy, crazy. The word participation in the Greek. Koinonia. Everyone say it with me. Come on. Koinonia. Okay. Koinonia. The word participation is koinonia. Now, for all of you Greek scholars, okay. Okay. And really, this is one of the most famous Greek words. If you've ever heard it before, you know what it means. It means Fellowship. To share in, to align yourself with, listen, to make allegiance with. So now let's read the text again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in, a joining in, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in, a a joining in, and aligning with the body of Christ? In other words, what Paul says is that somehow in the meal, in the table, in the institution, the blessed sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as we break the bread and take the cup and remember the power of Christ, that somehow in that act there is an adjoining, an alignment, a participation in the person of Christ. Are you guys with me? We have that at our access. In other words, in Christ, we can participate with Christ. But instead, most of us find ourselves uh, here. Next slide. Most of us find ourselves taking opportune participation. Oh, I will align and make allegiance and have fellowship with Christ, but it will be on my terms. When the opportunity is correct, when everything has like presented itself perfectly, that's when I'll step in. Let's let's use some specifics here, okay? Next slide. I will align with Christ as long as it doesn't cost me much. Does that resonate with anyone? Oh, I, I will like step out and align and I will jump in the boat with Jesus. As long as he doesn't bid me come and die. I mean, the moment he, he bids me come and die, the moment... The word actually means something that says that if I'm to gain my life, I'm going to lose it. Forget it. I'm out, man. I I want nothing to do with that kind of mentality. I'll align with Christ as long as, next slide, it doesn't require public boldness. And I'll even add to that public humiliation. 
Listen, as long as I don't need to make like a tremendous stand for the cause of Christ, like then I'm, then I'm great. I'll align with Christ in my closet. I'll, I'll align, listen, I'll even align with Christ with a bunch of Christians. You know, like where we have koinonia and fellowship with a bunch of believers where we're like talking the same and using the same language and singing the same songs and wearing the same stuff. Oh, in that moment, I will be bold. You give me around a bunch of non-believers, those who don't follow Christ, forget it. Forget it. Public boldness, potential public humiliation. I don't desire to be allegiant to Christ in that. Do you understand the dichotomy that's already being, that's already being built? What does Paul say? Flee from what? Come on, flee from what? Idolatry. Well, anything that's less than this is a competition of the trust of God. We're going to see where that goes tonight. I will align with Christ as long as it doesn't change my comfortability. For those of you that have spent any time around me in the last three weeks, guaranteed, any time, okay, there has been one common theme, one common theme. Many of you have seen emails and writings, and in fact, tonight, you had something on your chair. Uh, This is my heart. When Christ has called us to himself because he has given us an out of ourself, an escape from ourself, that means it is our joy to die. But many of us have said, you know what, no, Mark, I'd rather be comfortable, I'd rather be cozy. Listen, can I contend to you this, that what people think is Christianity in America, is it possible that there will be a massive surprise coming? That somehow we have allowed our culture in particular to dictate what Christianity is. And is it possible that there is a massive surprise coming when the Christ comes back and says, I know nothing of you. I don't know you. We didn't have fellowship. You didn't partake with me. You uh, You didn't die in following me. You didn't deny yourself. No, no, no. You lived for me when it was comfortable. And that, listen, that isn't living for me at all. Do you believe that with me tonight? That's what I'm saying has to change in our mentality. When America dictates Christianity, then the line will be follow Christ in so long as it's comfortable for you. And when it is, live your faith. Enjoy. It's for you, man. Partake. Then you fellowship. When Christ bids man to come, he bids him come and die. There's no other reality. And listen, it is our joy. Are you with me? Hebrews 12, you know how Brandon quoted Hebrews? It continues on in Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, joy came for Christ in pain. Why? Because the end. It's our joy to be called to come and die. It's our joy to say, comfort, whatever. I've signed up to die. I've embraced the call to see my flesh be killed for the glory of Christ. And that is my joy. Are you guys with me? Because you know when you find escape from yourself, therein lies joy. When finally you wake up and you're like, I don't have to live for the desires of my flesh one more day. Then all of a sudden you're enlightened to the truth that that is where life and joy is in Christ. But still, some of you struggle with this. I'll align with Christ. Next slide. As long as it doesn't mean I have to fully die. And I'll go like 80% of the way, but if it requires too much, um, then I'm out. So the problem is Jesus makes something very, very clear, and I want to help make it clear for you. Next slide, look at this. I love this line, Mark 8. For whoever, you guys see that? The word whoever here means whoever, so anybody. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are we all together? Can we just say that's true? Okay. So listen, in other words, if you only align and make allegiance with Christ and join in fellowship with Christ when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when it's not going to require public boldness or humiliation, I just want to make sure you're understanding. Because if everyone tonight can at least hear the truth, then you can make a very, very clear decision. Do you desire to follow Christ or do you not? But those who desire to follow him, listen, There is no shame. Why? Because he's God and not an idea. Are you with me? If he sits on a throne, then all of a sudden, it's not just that he's worthy of all of my praise and worship. It's that I have nowhere else to go. There's no other place to bend the knee. There's no competition because I put anything else up to the character of God, and it's not even on the same galaxy. But what happens when it seems like there are things there? which is the reality for many of you, right? 
Mark, why is there such a competition? Maybe this will help. Next slide. I love this. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. Come on. Oh, my goodness. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, what's the word? Share, participate with, have koinonia, have fellowship with his what? What's the word? Come on. Sufferings. You guys understand. This is the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Christ. This is the thing that in Christ we subscribe to, and it's our joy. The, the burdens of, or, or the commands of Christ aren't burdensome, First John says. Why? Because we get to share in fellowship, participate with Christ. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says there is one opportunity for you to align, find fellowship and allegiance with the person of Christ and the participation of the meal, of the table. It's not the real body and blood of Christ like some of you have grown up to believe. But what it is is an ancient symbol that is still somehow relevant because Christ allowed in his grace the church to remember him in this way. We'll continue to wrestle with that, but let's look on to verse 17. Because the scripture says, there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we will all partake of that one bread. Well, this is kind of weird because, again, when we take the Lord's Supper here at communion, uh, for many reasons, like if we just had one gigantic a piece of bread that that would pose some difficulty. You guys all understand, right? And 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 most stores. I just want to make sure you, again you understand. Uh, this bread is symbolic. It's beautiful. We do not believe here that this is the real body of Christ. Does that make sense? What it represents is something powerful. Okay, all right. But but we don't just have like one massive piece of bread. So then, what does verse seventeen say? Let, let's read it again. Because there is one bread, we who are many form one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Can I, can I share something really, really awesome with you? Is that cool? I know many of you like bread. How many of you guys like bread? Okay. Okay. And I know some of you guys right now, are, who here is on a no-carb diet specifically? Just so we can point you out. There we are. Kind of. We got some so-sos back there. So for all the folks that are on a no-carb diet right now, this is for you. Here we go. Next slide. Look at this. Next slide. Come on. Come on, bro. Come on. Hit me up, Andrew. Come on, bro. There we go. <laughs> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life for all those, okay, on the no-carb diet. Look at this. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I have to contend to you, the scripture is either true or not. In other words, when you align, find allegiance with the bread that is Christ, you know what? There is no competition. Why? Because you'll never thirst. You'll never be hungry, ever, ever. The word is either true or not. Are you guys with me? This is either a suggestion or self-help like Oprah or it's the scripture. Okay? Uh, Jesus says later in the chapter, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Later he says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. What he's saying is, unless you have fellowship with me, unless you share with me in my life and my sufferings and my joy and my love and my calling, then you have no part of me. Why? Because I'm the bread of life. And when you come to the bread of life, you will never be hungry again. You will never thirst. You will never thirst. The reason why this is so difficult is because we find ourselves subscribing to an idea that we've convinced ourselves is a person. But then we find ourselves getting hungry. And when you get hungry, you start scavenging. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Come on now. When my kids get home from school, it's as if they haven't eaten in years. Seriously. 
My kids get home from school. You, like, you just need to look out because everybody be hangry. Everybody. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's hungry and angry for those of you that couldn't put those together. Okay? Like, people, people are just, they're, they're, they're wrecked. So, I mean, they're, like, flying open doors. They're, like, you know, going through the cupboards. Again, it's, it's as if they're, you know, I mean, kids, please. Like, I know, like, I know you really want another Cheez-It, but, like, can we just, but that's what happens when you're hungry. So if Christ isn't all satisfying, because ultimately you don't have fellowship with him, ultimately you have a belief in an idea of him, then what happens is you get hungry. And when you get hungry, you go searching. And when you go searching, then all of a sudden all kinds of crazy, dangerous things begin to happen. But oh, the opposite. When your hunger and thirst are fully satisfied in Christ and there's no competition of idolatry. Are you guys with me? And there's no competition. Okay. So the text continues here. And, and I love what Paul adds to this. Because he's making his case clear. Remember to sophisticated, wise people. He says this in verse 18. Okay. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, what he's saying is, anyone in Israel who partook of the food, and maybe even particular here, he's talking about the priests, who partook of the food on the altar, then there's something communally that's happening. Okay, I skipped over it here a second ago, intentionally, so we could go back to it. Go, go back to 1 John, because this is what's really, really key in all this. If we say we have fellowship with him, koinonia, unified allegiance, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So you can say all you want. I can say all I want. Oh, I love you, God. I'll die for you, God. I'll do whatever you want, God. But if while I'm doing that, I am living for myself, walking in darkness, we lie. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, not only do we have fellowship with Christ, but we have fellowship with what? Koinonia. Can I, can I like, can I tell you the beauty of that? Because when Christ bids us to come and die, do you know the beauty of the body? Is the understanding that that is so incredibly difficult to every day wake up and say, God, I want to have no competition for you as my God today. I desire to die to my flesh. And when I get to look up and see a whole bunch of people to walk through that together with me, oh, the beauty. And when we share in that together, like, hey, listen, let's die together. Let's watch our flesh be killed for the glory of Christ. And when you and I get the beauty of walking through that journey together and challenging one another and encouraging one another and praying for one another, that's why 1 John makes very, very clear what Paul does as well. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's why he says in verse 18 now, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? They share in that. Verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? You guys remember the whole context here, remember? There's all kinds of pagan gods, and they have made sacrifices to these pagan gods, has Corinth, and the meat that is left over from those sacrifices is being sold in the market. And so the question we dealt with a couple weeks ago, uh, several weeks ago actually, uh, the Christians were asking, well, should we eat in, in that? Like, can we eat that, that meat that's been sacrificed uh, to an idol? And what we learned a couple weeks ago is an idol is nothing. It's meaningless. But even though the idol is nothing, what happens when we find ourselves partaking with idolatry? So that's why Paul asked the question. Okay, let's read it one more time, and then we'll see his answer. What do I imply then? That, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is nothing? Verse 20, look at this. Please see this insanely heavy. No, he says. I imply that what pagan sacrifice 
they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Remember what he said earlier when he called them his beloved? Do you guys remember that? I don't picture him screaming this. I picture him with all love and grace helping his people understand that there is another table. This table over here is the joining in and the fellowship and the koinonia and the participation with Christ. But there is only one other table. Let me make it very, very clear. There are in total two tables. Participation with Christ and participation with what I would call the enemy, what scripture calls Hasatan, the accuser, or what we can call Satan, the demons. You're like, Mark, 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 whoa, man, I, dude, I thought I was just coming here to chill a little bit tonight. I, I didn't know we were going to talk, be talking about Satan, right? Like, just so we all understand, I'm not a Satan is under every rock kind of guy. You guys have heard me talk about it before. I don't blame the lack of a parking spot on Satan, okay? I'm not, I'm not like going through Walmart, you know, saying like, well, why in the world don't they have my cereal? Satan, I guess, doesn't want me to have the lucky charms, you know, like, like what's the problem? I'm not that kind of guy. But at the same time, I know that there are only two tables. Let me say it to you like I believe Paul says it to Corinth. I do not want you to participate with demons. I do not want you to have allegiance or fellowship or koinonia, alliance. I do not desire you to have those things with demons. Our next slide, I think this will be helpful. Here's what 1 Peter 3 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour a famous verse, but I just want you to understand in the context, if you are not aligning yourself with the person of Christ and all of that means, I'm not talking American Christianity now, I'm talking about Christ, then you only are aligning with demonic activity. In other words, what Paul is saying is, though an idol is nothing, Satan can certainly work through idolatry. Let me say it this way. Even though it's just a golden statue, even though it's just a job, even though it's just a green $1 bill, if you somehow think for a second that Satan can't use those things to begin to create competition, you're mistaken and misguided. Though the dollar is nothing, it'll wither. It'll be gone. Uh, Satan is something. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians says, has power for a minute. There's only two tables. So verse 21 is unbelievably heavy. Here's your proof text. For everyone who ever wanted to say you can't serve two masters and you wanted an actual appropriate text to communicate that, here's, here's verse 21. You, what's the word? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You, what's the word? Cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. But we're sure giving it, giving it a run, aren't we? Very, very crystal clear. You can't serve master, uh, two masters. You cannot come to this table and then come to this table. You cannot have koinonia joining in alliance and allegiance with Christ and then somehow have a joining allegiance, alliance with Satan. You cannot do it, Paul says. So let me say it again and make it, make it clear. You only have allegiance and alliance to one. Every single one of you tonight. Every single person. It's either with Christ or with the enemy. Next slide. I, I hope this will be helpful and somewhat heavy. Whoever makes a practice of sinning 
is of the devil. Um, I've used this before, kind of jokingly talking about my kids, like before they come to Christ, and you know, you guys have heard me say that they're they're sons of the devil um, because they're not regenerate. This is before Christ, and this is exactly what First John three says. I'm making a practice is habitual, unrepentant, continual desire to pursue sin without conviction and heart and true hardness of heart. That's what making a practice of sin is. It's I indulge, I indulge. No repentance. I'm running away from God. I'm aligning with the enemy. Let me make sure you understand. Every single person is born into that. And today, without relationship with Christ, I just want to make sure you understand. You are then of the devil. My guess is there aren't like many bumper stickers with that on it. Okay. And do you remember what Paul opened with? My what? My beloved. I'm not speaking this tonight to be a means of condemnation. Actually, it's all wrapped in hope. Why? Because there's a way out of yourself. There's a way out of the enemy. Though many of you walked in feeding from this altar tonight, you don't have to anymore. First John ends with this, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared, look at this, was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. That's why. So let's put some meat and potatoes on this. Next slide. If you try to partake from both tables, which I would guess many, many of you tonight are making a great attempt. No, Mark, I can eat here and I can eat here. Listen, I can have the relationship and date on the side. If you try to partake from both tables, next slide. Number one, you will forget what joy is and where it comes from. I've said it tonight a lot, and I just, I want to repeat it. My heart's so soft to this. It is, it is our joy to share in the sufferings of Christ. A command is not burdensome. It is our joy to make disciples. It is our joy to be humiliated for the name of Christ. It's our joy to have the opportunity and the grace to completely, on a daily basis, leave the comforts that have been built around us to fully align with the person of Christ. It's our joy, but when you start partaking from both tables, you start getting super confused about what joy is and where it comes from. You're not sure anymore. I don't know. Like, I used to find joy here, but, but this seems to give me something. And, and you're just, you're caught. And those of you that are caught, you know how devastating it is. Because as the joy gets, uh, the, the attempt of joy is robbed from the enemy, from your flesh, from your sin. Oh my goodness, the power. Why? Because then you wake up every single day. Hopeless. Confused, hurting so bad. But that's why somehow there is another kind of way that is able to wake up amidst the pain and say, it's my joy to embrace the cause of Christ, whatever he has for me. Number two, if you try to partake from both tables, you will have a distorted understanding of your purpose and mission. I've had a lot of conversations recently where folks find themselves precisely here. I don't know why I'm here, Mark. I have no understanding what my life is all about or what I'm supposed to do. And I just want to make sure everyone understands when you're trying, when you want to maintain a relationship and flirt on the side, I just I want to make sure you understand you will be utterly confused every single day of what it is that you're here to do. It'll depend on the day. It'll depend on who you're around. When you're around other believers, all of a sudden you get fired up about the Lord. When you're around this group of people, mm, I'm going to feast from this table. Number three, if you try to partake from both tables, it's so heavy on my heart tonight, you will slowly believe that dining at both tables is your only option. In other words, some of you so desperately believe that tonight. Mark, there's no way out. 
Mark, there is no way I can align fully with one of these altars. There's no way. This is scary. This is comfortable. I, I, Mark, Mark I, I just, it's, it's not. Like, I, I can't do it. And that's what trying to feed from both does. It just, it, it fosters that further thought that you will forever sit in the middle. And that's why some of you are so desperately exhausted tonight. Because you go to this table and then you go to this one and you're back and forth trying to serve two masters. But what we've seen very clearly tonight is you cannot. You will only align with one. Does alliance with Christ mean perfection, anybody? Does it mean perfection? No. My allegiance and alliance to Christ does not mean that I will be flawless in my execution of dying to myself. What it does mean is I'm led and guided by the Spirit of God. And as the war rages inside of me, flesh versus spirit, I every single day embody more and more and more that I am called to die. And when I find myself struggling, repentance comes quickly. I see sin quickly. The heart is soft quickly. We can only serve one. So he ends with this thought in verse 22. It's awesome because it poses a great question for us. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, do you want to spend the rest of your life allowing the competition of idolatry to run the show? He's a jealous God. Thankfully for us, he desires to be worshipped. He doesn't just say, hey, you guys, you know, you guys maybe, no, he desires to be worshipped. Which makes him the one true God. Why? Because he's worthy of it and he yearns it. And he's jealous for our worship. There's no competition then. You know what uh, the end of Revelation says? That the competition will be killed, sent away, burning forever. That's what happens with the competition. That's why what happens to Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4 is so incredibly powerful. Look at this as we close. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He's already tempted him twice. And he showed Jesus, did Satan, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And so you pull up your seat at the table just like Jesus did. And you begin to hear all of the lure from the enemy. Oh, I will give you this. One more indulgence. One more day living for yourself. And I'm telling you, the future is bright. I know right now that, that you're getting confused by being in a sexually charged situation or, or the, the greed that is causing lust in your heart. But listen, it, like all of the joy will be yours tomorrow. And on and on. And Satan presents it as he does at his table. So um, cunningly, so creatively, here, it can all be yours. If you only fall down and worship me. Here's what Jesus says in verse 10 of Matthew 4. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Is anyone else encouraged by that reality? That's how Satan will end, to be gone forever. And every single person who spent their life dining at this table will go with him. Forever in fellowship with the enemy. But everyone who comes to the table of the Lord Everyone who says, there is no one but you. Everyone who says, I'm scared, I don't even know what fully dying to my flesh looks like, but 
I don't want you to be an idea. I, I desire to submit to you as God. I, I long to follow you. They will have fellowship with him forever. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Uh, tonight, I want to invite you to the altar. Uh, in front of you is another table. Uh, you'll notice when you come to receive the meal that there's nothing on it. But all three of these tables represent the altar that tonight you get to walk past. In all of its allures, in all of its invitation, in all of its empty promise. Listen, follower of Christ, tonight you can, in the power of Christ, walk past the empty table. And instead, do you know what you get to partake in? Do you know what you get to participate in? The broken body of Christ. That's why. Who through the broken body of Christ you have fellowship with him. Do you know what you get to participate in? Follower of Christ is the blood. You get to receive this. And find alliance and alignment with him. Tonight it is your joy, no matter how you walked in here, attempting to sit and dine at both tables. I'm telling you, the hope is in Christ that tonight, because of the power of Christ, you can say, I will no longer dine at the empty table. I'm done. I'm done. God, I'm scared. I don't know what's next, but I know that I have fellowship with others who long to walk with me. And the amazing thing is, some of you in here walked in this building, in this room, and this has only been your reality. Can I tell you this right now? Call on his name. The scripture says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Scripture says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Tonight, right now, you can have fellowship and find yourself aligned to not an idea, but to a God. To a God who says, come to the table. Fellowship with me. And our fellowship will never end. So church, my beloved, come to the altar tonight, walking past the empty table for the glory of Christ. Respond when you're ready.